birth announcements today border on the extreme. Some of these outlandish birth announcements even come to the point of insanity. Some even starting wildfires and burning hundreds of thousands of acres to reveal the gender of a child. From gender reveals to birth announcements, Americans seemingly try to create new and unique ways every year of announcing their children's birth or revealing their gender. Ironically enough, doing it in a culture that seems to want to distance itself from childbearing altogether. Regardless, soon-to-become parents create these outlandish Instagram posts or uh, photographs that are highly edited in order to display their excitement of a newborn child. From cakes filled with different colors to balloons released, these different announcements on gender and children seek to display how wonderful children are. Regardless of how outlandish or ridiculously, ridiculous these birth announcements can get, regardless of how unique they might be, how amazing one might think their ideas are, nothing compares to the birth announcement we see this morning in Luke chapter 2. Even considering the announcement of John, the birth of John there at the end of chapter 1, his father, elderly, mother, elderly. His father is dumb and mute, can't hear, can't speak. Miraculously, upon his birth, can speak. Or the multitude of millions of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on peace among those whom he is well pleased. Nothing pales in comparison to the announcement that the king has come. While it happened in the middle of nowhere in a no-name city, God's purposes were being fulfilled. Fascinatingly, perhaps all these modern-day announcements are none other than a faint echo of the past from a small town in a Judean countryside an echo from the city of David, where a child was born, a child which would transform human history that we know today. This morning we're going to consider chapter 1, verse 57, through chapter 2, verse 20. The birth of two sons, one named John and another named Jesus. Now, a few weeks ago, we considered in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the purpose of why Luke has picked up the pen and and written. He has written his gospel to a well-known colleague in the ministry named Theophilus. And he's written to give Theophilus certainty that the things that he has come to know and believe are true. And so we need to understand, first and foremost, as we study through this gospel account, That every story is told in such a way as to give certainty, assurance that the events that took place are accurate and true. But Luke is, is no mere reporter. Rather, he is reporting from eyewitness accounts, but also giving us the theological foundation or point of why 
these events took place. In other words, this is not mere biography of Jesus, but this is about the one true and living God who came into the world to save sinners. And so while he is giving us certainty, he is also helping the reader understand that all of this history is being brought about that we might worship the one true and living God. His name is Jesus. So I invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 1. Now we're going to read this throughout as I, as I walk through these. It's a long narrative. Rather than reading it in whole, I'll read it in part as we go through this. But I want to put before you the main idea of these verses. And this really is the main idea of the whole letter, the theological idea, the main point theologically, that peace with God comes through salvation. One of the main themes of this gospel is that peace with God has come through the salvation that is brought by the forgiveness of sins. So all the way at the very end of this gospel, we don't have the time to turn there now, you'll read Luke's interpretive lens by which he understands the cross. That at the cross there is forgiveness of sins. Everything is unfolding. The story that is begun here in these early verses unfolds and points to Calvary. Where God will be fully and finally reconciled with man through the death of His Son. And so the purpose of our time this morning is for us to reflect on who Jesus is and how His work brings about joy and peace. In other words, when you learn the news that your sins have been forgiven and that you're now reconciled to God, that God is no longer angry with you, no longer are you at enmity with God, but that you're at peace with God, it brings about one response. And we see that response in the characters in our story, and that is rejoicing. In fact, Luke uses in his gospel account the word to rejoice or to have joy more than any other writer in the New Testament. Because when Jesus comes into your life, it brings joy. It brings rejoicing. It brings about peace beyond all understanding. And that's what we want to think about this morning. That the coming of the Savior has brought about peace between God and His people. In Luke's unfolding narrative this morning, I've divided into two parts. We have first, in verse 57 through verse 80 of chapter 1, we are told about the birth of John. And in the telling of the birth of John, Luke records for us that joy has come because of forgiveness of sins. And so in, in John's father's praise, song of praise, in Zechariah's song, the real theme of it is forgiveness of sin. Our sins have been forgiven. But then also in the unfolding narrative that Jesus has been born, there is this theme of reconciliation that is put on display, that God has come to reconcile with man. Well, with these two points in mind, I want us to consider, first, rejoice for your sins are forgiven. We're told here in verse 57 through 66 that John was born to this elderly couple, Elizabeth 
and Zechariah. God's promise that was given through Gabriel that we thought about last week has been fulfilled and John is born. Now one of the customs that the law gave the people of Israel was at the eighth day after birth is when the child was to be circumcised. Well, of course, we know that Elizabeth and Zechariah were, were good law followers. They were righteous and obedient. And so we're told that on the eighth day, they circumcised John. But, but they also, in this particular time in the first century, and, and this isn't tied necessarily to the Old Testament law, but it was a practice in that day that the child would be named on the day of circumcision. And so as the, the, the people are, are looking in on this family, kind of really excited about this elderly couple giving birth to a, a, a son, they, they, they recognize that God was doing something. They come to him and say, well, well of course you're going to name him Zechariah. Of course you're going to name him Junior, right? You're not going to name him some random name. And, 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 and in the moment, there's this frantic, uh, frantic Zechariah pacing back and forth. And he says, no, 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 his name needs to be John. Well, the only problem is he can't talk, nor can he hear, we're told. And the real point comes in verse 66, if you look there with me. And all who heard all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Interestingly enough, Luke parallels it. it the word is inclusio. He has, a, he has a bookend, like a sandwich, if you will. He begins this narrative with reflection. And he ends the narrative of Jesus' birth with a similar reflection. We're told in verse 19 of chapter 20, or chapter 2 rather, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. In other words, the response is what ought to clue us in to the main idea. That John was special, but that John wasn't superior to Jesus. Well, as the story unfolds, we're told that Zechariah burst out in praise. He's been mute for nine months, unable to speak, unable to understand, unable to communicate. He has a lot to say, doesn't he? He can't tell the story about Gabriel meeting him in the Holy of Holies. He's not been able to tell that story yet. And so for nine months, he's had to wait, and, and the day has come. His tongue is loosed, he can hear again, and he burst out in proclamation and prophecy. And look here at verse 67, what we're told. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way. And here it is, listen. To give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. Well, we don't have time to look at every single word there, but we notice a number of themes, isn't it? And the real main theme that we see in his prophecy, in his praise, in his proclamation, is that God is faithful to his promises. God had made a series of promises to his people, going all the way back thousands of years earlier to the forefather of the nation of Israel, Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise that that he would be a great nation, and that kings would come from him. And then God made a promise to David that you heard earlier, and we thought about last week, that God had promised David that his name, his throne would be established forever. Well, Zechariah is saying that all of those promises that God made in the Old Testament, every single one of them is coming to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the long-awaited descendant of Abraham that will deliver God's people He is the long-awaited king who would be the victor over God's enemies. And that Zechariah's son John would be the fulfillment of, of a prophet that Malachi promised would come in the spirit of Elijah. And we see here John's job description in verses 76 through 79 that he would go before the Lord to prepare his way. And in a few weeks, we're going to see that's exactly what John does. He calls the nation of Israel to repentance and faith. He says, repent of your sins and believe in the promises of God. But we see here the purpose of Jesus' coming wasn't to establish some kingdom here on earth, but, but first and foremost was to forgive God's people of their sins. Now, it's been 500 years since God has spoken to His people. You know, so often we think about God and, you know, His behavior in the New Testament to think that it's different than the old. God is long-suffering with His people, friend. He is a very loving and patient God. And He has been very patient with His, His people for hundreds of years while they rebel against them. Notice how Zechariah paints the picture, if you will. Look here in verse 29. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is a very bleak picture of the nation, isn't it? The nation is in darkness, literal darkness, that God has gone silent. You think this is good, this this is a bad time for the people of Israel. They don't know if God's ever going to come back again. If he's just completely abandoned them altogether, he was so angry with their sin and rebelliousness that he's just like, I'm done with you all. The whole lot of you can go to hell. And he paints this picture of darkness and, and deplorable situation. But in the midst of this, God is promising that light has come. To bring knowledge, we see in verse 77, of salvation to his people. We think the gospel is just like written on the sky. No, no, God withheld knowledge of salvation in judgment of his people. But God in his grace is revealing the gospel to his people again, the hope of salvation, the forgiveness of their sins. God was making a way for the people that their sins might be forgiven, that it might be atoned for. 
This was all we see in verse 78, not because God is just amazing, but because he's merciful. He is amazing in this way. Notice how he describes it, the tender mercy of our God. In other words, they did not deserve God's forgiveness. They did not merit this. This was an unconditional mercy. They deserved God's judgment and wrath and death. But God in his kindness was visiting upon his people. Notice again here in verse 79 how John or how Zechariah rather paints this picture to give light to those who sit in darkness. There is something, friend, isn't there? About the sunrise. After a long dark night, sun comes up in the morning. The Old Testament says new mercies are in the morning. The sun will come out again. What a reminder to us of the, the joy of light. We can see where we're going. <laughs> to walk in deep darkness, we stumble, we fall. It's a picture of our own sin and, and rebelliousness against God, but, but a light is shown that we might see our way home. Jesus Christ is that light to lead us into righteousness and holiness and out of the darkness of our own sin. For the sunrise brings joy and happiness. That's why the, the natural response to the gospel is that of rejoicing and joy and celebration and jubilee. There, there's excitement around it. Because we know that we were in darkness. We know that we were separated from God. Alienated from Him. We were on a fast train to hell. But God in His infinite mercy and grace described here as tender mercy. So often when we think about our own sin being exposed, we think it of a negative. Oh, friend, God is so gracious, isn't He, to expose your sin? We think we get away with our sins. We think we're sly. We think we can continue to live in sin and darkness, but one of the acts of a sovereign God is to bring our sin into the light. And friend, I pray that for you every day. I pray that your sin will be brought into the light, not that you'll be exposed in shame, but so that, that you can deal with your sin in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought never to, to feel that, that bringing sin into the light is bad. No, this is good, you see. It brings joy and rejoicing to confess our sins, to say, I am a broken person and I need a glorious Savior. And God, we are told in these verses, is faithful to His people. He will never abandon His heritage. He did not abandon Israel, and He will not abandon the church. We ought to rejoice that our sins are forgiven. But we see, secondly, in the birth of Christ, we ought to rejoice for your sins, or rather, you ought to rejoice because you've been reconciled to God. Now, this is going to be difficult for us, but let's spend some time looking at this birth narrative in new light. Considering that the main idea of this whole thing is about how God wants to destroy you, but He's got a plan to rescue you from Him. 
That God has a plan to rescue you from himself and his wrath and his great rescue plan is his son. Now we're told in verses 1 through 7 that Jesus was born. Let's read this together. Look here. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And, it went to be, and they went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Well, the first thing we note in this is understanding the purpose and why Luke is writing is that this is historical. This actually happened. He gives us some historical facts that Caesar Augustus, Octavius was his real name, named Caesar Augustus. Caesar is God. How ironic, isn't it? Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. He was the ruler over this expansive Roman Empire. The world had ever, never seen anything as great as the Roman Empire. They were a world superpower. And in order to pay for this expensive and very expanding territory and kingdom, they needed a census to generate more taxes. This is what we're told here, that there was a decree that went out, a, a census in order to tax the people. You thought Americans were the only ones that got taxed. No, taxation is just a good way to keep people in check. And during the time the Jews lived, they lived in this sort of love-hate relationship with the Romans. Uh, they loved the protection that the Roman military gave them, but they hated paying taxes. Who wants to be controlled by someone else? They loved it when they were free. Well, the goal here, and particularly we see uh, the Jews, were kind of opportunistic, if you will. They made the best of a really bad situation. And so like the rest of those under Roman control, we're told that Joseph takes his, his, uh, his young bride, they're going to be married here soon, his young bride, and takes her down. And we're told here that they go up from Galilee, that's the, town, the, the region they lived in, uh, their hometown was Nazareth, a kind of no-name town, if you will, there in Galilee. And they go down to Bethlehem. Again, not anything significant about Bethlehem. Now, I know we tend to tell our stories at Christmas time as if it was just a sweet little country town, but it was frankly just somewhere you tended to pass through. You never really wanted to stay long there. But we see in the midst of this story that this is not mere coincidence. Friend, I hope that you're not at loss at what's really going on here. That a sovereign God is using a wicked ruler, one of the most wicked rulers to ever lead the empire, to bring about His sovereign purposes. Do you see this? God, there's no reason for Joseph and Mary to be in Bethlehem if it had not been for this particular decree, this is not mere accident. Rather, this is the guidance of a, of a providential God. This was to fulfill a promise that God had given through the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient of days. This is David's hometown, King David, the greatest king in Israel. And, and, and this is where Joseph's from. Oh, the reader begins to understand that, oh, this is, this is David's great-great-great-grandson. And he's going to be the king who will rule. It was also to fulfill this promise that David had received that we read earlier in First Chronicles, that he would have a son to sit on the throne forever. Well, that's particularly impossible if it's just merely a human being, isn't it? It needed to be someone eternal, someone who could live forever. And we ought to see here that God is bringing about His purposes for His own glory. God is orchestrating the events and affairs of humanity in order to bring His Son into the world. Friend, your salvation is not mere coincidence or, or accident. God purposed it. We also see here in verses 4 and 5 that it was royal, isn't it? The question has to be, is this really the Christ? Now, we're told here that Jesus is born. There's no representative from Caesar's household there. No trumpets. No pomp, no circumstance. The Queen of England dying just a matter of a week ago. In her death, nothing but pomp. Nothing but celebration and mourning and remembering to good life. But here we have the Savior of the world. Here we have the eternal Son of God. And it's just nothing. It's a, it's a hole in the wall. A cave, cold and dark, filled with stinky, smelly animals. And a trough, a feeding trough. There's no regalia, no trumpets blasting, no celebration. Well, at least not from human perspective. But as the scene unfolds, we see that God and the angels throw a massive party, don't we? A celebration sort of par none. What king was ever born that an angel sang at? What baby was ever born that trumpets sounded from heaven? Millions of angels. No, it's this unique humble birth that reveals that Jesus is the king we all need. One of the things you'll find surprising as you read Luke's gospel is that Jesus cannot be put on your terms. Jesus does not want you defining who he is. He will define the kind of king he will be. And so he's constantly pushing against our worldly expectations of a king. And even in his birth, we see in the humility and brokenness of it all that he is the king we all need. We're told here in verses 6 and 7 that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Let the reader understand that she had other sons. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, a, a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the inn. Humility before glory is the way of God's kingdom, friend. It's important to see the humility of Jesus' birth. His birth in many ways reflected his own life, didn't it? Jesus said it this way, Foxes have dens and birds of the skies have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The King of glory, the creator of the cosmos, is laid in a feeding trough with scraps of food still stuck to the side of it. The eternal God is laid to rest there in the middle of nowhere in a cold, dark winter night 
Nothing glamorous, nothing beautiful, nothing wonderful. It stinks. But the point remains, as one author says, the incarnation anticipates the sacrifice of the crucifixion. There is a consistent trajectory from the manger to the cross. Jesus came in selfless humility. Friend, this is the Savior we need. Of all the people groups in all the world that we could think of to communicate this glorious message, who does God choose to do that? But a bunch of stinky old shepherds that have been out in the fields for months. We're told that this group of shepherds are are met by an angelic visitation. Look with me at verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. Of all the groups that God would choose, He didn't choose the rich and powerful. He didn't choose the the mighty and the noble, the influential, the socialite. You know, if you think about it, we, we would naturally choose somebody who could get the message out far and wide, wouldn't we? You know, tell it to the president, tell it to the governor, tell it to somebody that has influence and money that can get this message out as quickly as possible. The king has been born. Our hope, we no longer need to live in subjection to the Roman powers. We no longer need to live in isolation from our God. He has come to visit us. He has come. He's incarnate here in flesh. We can see and touch Him. This is greater and more marvelous than anything the nation had known before. But God didn't choose to do that, did He? In His own infinite wisdom, God chose these shepherds to take the most salacious and scandalous news the world would ever hear. Because friend, the reality is that you cannot put Jesus back in a box or store Him in an attic. When Jesus is let loose in a society, in a, in a, in, among a people, when Jesus is let loose in a country, He becomes King, you see. He becomes Lord. God chose these shepherds to reveal this message because it reminds us that Jesus came for such as these. One of the consistent themes throughout Luke's Gospel is that Jesus came not for the insider, but for the outsider. Jesus came for those who were despised and rejected. Jesus came for the outcast. These shepherds weren't the socialites. These weren't people you hung out with. These were outsiders. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
like you and like me. And even in His birth, He is declaring the kind of people He has come to. But notice why He came. The message they received there in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's a Savior. He came to save. Well, what did He come to save from? Well, He came to save us from our sins, from ourselves. He came to deliver us from the great enemy, Satan, and from our own rebellion against God. But He would not merely bring victory over the Roman Empire. He would not bring victory over economic poverty or social blight. But rather, He came to reconcile us God. We sing that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory Be to the Newborn King. God and sinners, right? Reconciled. That's the point of the story, that we've been reconciled with God. Do you recognize the incarnation is God not distancing Himself from God's people, from His people, but rather drawing near to His people? You can't get much closer than than becoming one of us. It demonstrates the length in which God will go to save His people from His sins. And just to be clear, the Bible says that sin is living life your own way. So if that's you this morning, you just kind of, you, you, you're the captain of your own ship. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You do life the way you want to do it. Uh, friends, that's just sin, okay? That's what the Bible defines as sin. Choosing to live life your way rather than God's way. But Jesus came to rescue us from this disastrous plan that we have of living life our own way. This is why He came, to save us from the Father's wrath. Notice here the response of the angels. Verse 13, And suddenly there was a multitude of angels, multitude meaning millions, of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he's well pleased. We see something glorious in this passage, don't we? That God has sent his son into the world to save a particular people for his own glory. We ought to praise God in this particular passage for his sovereign purposes, to be really a hint at his redemptive purposes in this angelic announcement for those whom he's well pleased. Who is he well pleased with? The nation is in rebellion against him. They're not like looking for a savior. They think they found one. And it isn't Jesus. But Christ has come to save his people for his glory. And friend, we ought to just come at grips with this glorious purpose that God has sent his son to save us. Well, we're told that the angels then uh, deliver this message, then the shepherds act. And, and in the final part of this story, we see that they go and find everything as it was said to them. Now remember, Luke's purpose is to give certainty, assurance that this really happened. And by the telling of this, we see a bit of insider or eyewitness accounts, don't we? Surely he would have interviewed a number of those people that had attended Elizabeth at the birth of John. No doubt Luke had had interviewed a number of eyewitnesses at the birth of Christ. And particularly, we see here, verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Well, how would they have known that? How would Luke have known that if he didn't interview somebody and ask them? Oh, but here comes an eyewitness account. 
verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Friend, our response is the response of the, the eyewitnesses, isn't it? To ponder over them, to think about them. This glorious announcement that has come is the same as the shepherds were told. This announcement induces in us a desire to glorify the Lord. To say, God, you are glorious and you are good. God has done a thing in our life. He has has saved us. Sovereignly brought about our redemption for His glory. I hope this morning, if you think your sin is too great, that you understand in the telling of this story the depth and the length and the height at which God will go to save a sinner You are not too far gone, friend. Your sin is not so great that it has distanced you so far from God that His hand cannot reach and save you. You've not traveled too far, fallen too far, sinned too much. Friend, the Lord has drawn near to you through Jesus Christ. This is the only evidence you need to have assurance that you too can be saved. If you will only turn and trust that Jesus is the Savior you need. More than that, this announcement elicits our praise. We ought to loosen our lips and sing songs of joy and satisfaction that He is our hope in life and death. That God has not cast us away. Though our sin be as red and as crimson, it shall be as white as snow. Gloriously paid for, as we sung earlier. Jesus paid every last bit of it. He came to die for this reason. Brothers and sisters, I hope we see in this story there is such joy and rejoicing because God has visited His people not in wrath like they deserve, not in judgment, in condemnation, but visiting them in humility and delivering to them a Savior so that their sins would be forgiven and that they would be reconciled to Him. Friend, you could spend this afternoon just meditating on this particular idea of peace with God. God is not angry with you. If you are in Christ, you're at peace with God. Now, I want you to think about all the glorious implications That God is for you. He's not against you. Would you come and worship Him? Would you come and, and hear this message of true life? That Christ has come to usher you into His eternal kingdom. A Christ who has given to you and said to you, Come and dine with me at my Father's table. Oh, This is a a time of rejoicing and celebration. Through Christ our Lord, salvation has come. And we have peace with Him. Well, I conclude with this word from a Puritan prayer entitled, The God Who Gives. What shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created. My Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute. His self-emptying, incomprehensible. His, His infinity of love beyond the heart of grasp. 
Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me up. Was born like me that I might become like Him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to Him, He draws near on wings of grace to raise me to Himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, He united them indissoluble. The uncreated and the created. In Him Thou hast given me so much that heaven can give no more. Let's pray. God, You truly have given us an immeasurable gift. The gift of Your Son in exchange for our life. 